1: One of my favourite aquatic plants is the water lily. There's lots of water lilies, most of them are rather big and you need quite a large pond to grow them. But there's one small one called Nymphaea pygmaea rubra that you can grow in a little pond, a little water feature like mine, so you can enjoy the lovely things about water lilies in your own back garden. It's got lovely water lily round floating leaves that are so valuable for insects to sit on and shade out algae. And then all summer beautiful flowers come up, they open pink and they gradually turn red as they get older, and so you can enjoy lovely water lilies even in a small garden all summer. Today we're diving off the deep end into the world of aquatics. The plant rescuer, aka Sarah Gerard Jones, will fill us in on why making an indoor water feature is the ideal January activity.
2: I think as humans, we we just have a need to be near water. And I think having some sort of water feature in our homes does something good for our mental health.
1: We'll delve into the world of invasive aquatic weeds with RHS Head of Taxonomy, Dr John David. I suppose the thing to do
3: is just look for the native plants, which you're not causing so much of a problem.
1: Before finally taking a step back from ponds and waterways and turning instead to trees. Ecosystem Services Fellow Dr. Elizabeth Larson will give us an exclusive tour of her arboreal experiments that investigate water capture.
4: What we're interested in here is very much kind of the physical aspect of how trees use water and how then that can affect their environment or their microclimate.
1: You're listening to Gardening with the RHS, with me, Guy Barter. Unless you have a pond or water feature in your garden, many of us tend to forget all about aquatic and semi-aquatic plants. But author and houseplant enthusiast Sarah Gerard jones wants to push back on that mentality. For a while now, Sarah has been creating unique mini water features for the home – Something anyone with an empty bowl and a windowsill can create. Here's Sarah with a dynamic tutorial on how to bring a semi-aquatic plant inside this winter.
2: I mean, a lot of people nowadays don't have a garden, of course, so I feel like bringing plants indoors is really important for our mental health So today I want to tell you a bit about how to bring plants indoors in a bit of an unusual way. I wanted to talk to you about pennywort and how to make an indoor water feature, which I think makes a really calming feature in your house. I love marsh pennywort. That's Hydrocotyl vulgaris, which is found in a wide range of damp, swampy, marshy habitats in Europe and northern Africa. And in fact, it's the UK's only native hydrocotyle species. Not to be confused with floating pennywort, which is a non-native, highly invasive species, which was introduced through the aquatic trade and can be found clogging up our canals and waterways. So this is marsh pennywort that I'm talking about, which isn't invasive. And it's actually having a bit of a hard time at the moment due to habitat loss, particularly here in the southeast of England. And I just love this plant. I think it's beautiful it has really pretty round umbrella like leaves it's so easy to care for it's fast growing it's easy to propagate it's cheap it can be planted outdoors or indoors and it's even edible it tastes a bit like (laughs) carrot And I suppose it does bring back memories for me because as a very young child I used to make, uh, it sounds ridiculous, homes for frogs using buckets with moss and plants from the pond. So it was quite nostalgic for me seeing this patio full of these containers full of water. It reminded me of my childhood making these frog homes. The urge to make mini ponds is obviously something that hasn't gone away because I'm still making them now with um, pennywort. (laughs) I was given an old vintage glass lab. I think it's called a, a, a desiccator, which is essentially a glass bowl with a lid that would be used in a scientific laboratory. And I already had pennywort by then, and it just inspired me to put it inside there. So it like I was saying earlier about making homes for frogs, it just reminded me of that. And I thought, well, I could make kind of a little pond out of this with the pennywort. So I already have an aquarium and I love playing about with aquascaping in the aquarium and I thought well maybe I'll try and do something in this vintage glass lab bowl and it looked so great that I had to film it and put it on Instagram and people absolutely went wild for it. It was one of my most viewed videos for ages actually and I think it brought Penny warts to a wider audience and I just think not many people have heard of it or thought of growing it indoors. So, yeah, I was really glad that I'd been able to introduce this this plant to to more people. Yeah, so it's really simple and you can be really creative with what you use to plant pennywort in any vessel which is watertight and won't rust basically will be fine. I think it looks great planted into a glass container and I like being able to see the runners and the tiny leaves developing under the soil through the glass. A great place to source glassware from and where I always go is charity shops because it's cheap and you can find a variety of unique and different shaped vases or bowls. And then it's really simple. All you do is you start by adding a layer of potting compost. Any peat-free compost is fine. Then you plant the pennywort into that substrate and add another thin layer of soil and then it's just a layer of decorative grit or gravel which will hold the soil in place. And then you can just fill it up with water with as much or as little as you would like. And don't worry if you see some bits of the soil floating because they will sink back down again as it settles. Or you can scoop them out. And that's really it. It's so simple. And then you just must place the bowl on a bright windowsill or under a grow light and watch it grow. And it will grow really quickly, almost before your eyes. It will change daily and it will soon completely fill the bowl. And then if it gets too crowded, you can propagate it or you know, make another bowl with that. But yeah, it's really simple to do. Anybody can do it. So in winter, if you leave the pennywort outside, it will die back. I left a bowl of pennywort outside, actually, and forgot about it over winter. And in the spring, I found it again, and it had been colonized by moss. And it actually just looked really magical. And slowly, the pennywort regrew through the moss in spring. And it actually created the most beautiful landscape within this small glass bowl. So, yeah, if you do put it outside, just remember in winter that it will die back. But don't be too concerned because when the weather gets better in spring and summer, it will come back again. This is, of of course, a, a native plant to the UK, so it can cope with our winters, but you just won't see it grow until spring. When spring comes, I do advise putting this plant outside. I actually advise doing this with a lot of other houseplants too, just so that it could get a decent amount of light, because of course, inside our homes, it's much darker than outside, and plants thrive when they get a decent amount of light. So I would take your bowl outside during spring, leave it outside for summer, and then if you want to, just bring it back inside for autumn and winter. So if you're looking to buy Pennywar, I think the best place is online and look at an aquatic shop. It should only cost five or six pounds plus postage, so it's really affordable. And you should only need one small plant because they grow so quickly. There's no need to be daunted by semi-aquatic plants at all. In fact, I think they are easier to care for than houseplants. I feel they kind of look after themselves. I've tried to get all of my friends into growing semi-aquatic plants. I've sent pennywort to lots of my houseplant friends because I just want everyone to love it as much as me. I think as humans, we we just have a need to be near water. You know, we all like visiting the beach and seeing the sea, and I think having some sort of water feature in our homes does something good for our mental health. I'm sure a psychologist could tell me more about why we enjoy water so much, but it's just, I find it just so calming to, to have water around. I like the noise of it in my aquarium and I like seeing the pennywort growing in the bowl. I just find it really brings me joy. If you're a cereal plant over waterer, then you should definitely buy yourself some pennywort because you cannot overwater this plant. It thrives in a pot with no drainage hole and you can fill it right up to the top and it will never die.
1: Thanks, Sarah. If you'd like to learn more about Sarah's work, check out her book, The Plant Rescuer, the book your houseplants want you to read and follow her on Instagram. You can find links to both in our show notes. What's more, Sarah is partnering with the RHS. We'll be offering house plants that are not quite at their best for cheap, so that you can bring them back to life with the help of the plant rescuer's guidance, of course. Stay tuned for details. As Sarah made clear, the mini water features she's designed use marsh pennywort instead of the invasive floating pennywort. Floating pennywort, or hydrocotyl ranunculoides, on the other hand, is quite the pest. It forms dense, almost impenetrable mats on the water's surface that seem to spread before your eyes. The mats block sunlight and hog oxygen, killing other aquatic flora and fauna within its realm. And that's just the tip of the iceberg. This past December, 700 tons of Hydrocotyl Ranunculoides were finally cleared to of Northumberland River in West London. Many hundreds of meters of the river had become obscured, hidden under this vast growing weed. It's been banned for almost a decade and evidently it still remains a problem. For more on invasive weeds and what you can do to prevent their spread is RHS Head of Horticultural Taxonomy, John David. Horticulture,
3: indeed, is, is a major pathway of introduction for non-native invasive species. Something like 40% of all non-native invasive species in the UK have been introduced through this route. There are 36 species that are still banned in the Great Britain, and they include aquatics such as Crassula helmsii, the New Zealand pygmyweed, Ludwigia grandiflora, water primrose, Hydrocotyle. Ranunculoides, the floating pennywort, Myriophyllum aquaticum, Parrot's Feather, elodia nuttallii, uh, Nuttles waterweed. That's just a few of the ones that have been listed. The main point of these bands is to prevent further spread of these species, which clearly present a problem to our environment. Most aquatic non-native plants are problematic because they spread quite rapidly. One of the problems with aquatics is they break up into small fragments and can spread through watercourses or be spread on the feet of birds, for instance. So it's one of the reasons why they're very difficult to eradicate completely. And that's why there are so many that are actually listed as invasives. But it's important to note that not all non-native plants are invasive, and we list over 70,000 plants for sale in the RHS plant finder, but only about 100 non-native plants are thought to be problematic. And as already said, some 40 or so are covered by legislation. I suppose the thing to do is just look for the native plants, which you're not causing so much of a problem. And there are some nice native plants, I mean, things like the bog bean, Minianthes trifoliata, which can fulfill a similar role in the garden use water lilies, I mean, that's a very nice thing to cover surfaces of ponds with. There will be plants which are not listed in legislation equally that we will want people to say, look, don't don't grow these, because legislation is a very slow process. And one of the important things is that you have to be aware that most of the things that are listed as invasive are already out there, and there's not a lot we can do. We can try and control them, but we've rarely can eradicate them. The best thing you can do is actually stop them from getting out into the environment in the first case. So the main piece of work really is to try and spot invasives before they become invasives. I think it's self-evident that gardeners, as people who grow and look after plants, need to be very attentive to the risk of plants spreading into the natural environment. They need to be very careful about how they dispose of excess material. There are plants that grow very vigorously and you need to think about, are you storing up a problem for the future? You have to think about the need to dispose of material correctly. With widespread recycling, there's no reason for people to dump excess plant material in the wild, which has been a problem in the past and, in fact, is still an ongoing problem. It is also important for people to think about the environment that surrounds them. You might be adjacent to sensitive habitats where the colonisation of non-native species will affect the other biodiversity, not just other plants but animals and other organisms that live in that habitat. Our research has shown that people are much more aware now of invasive plants, which is a good thing, but they've become very, very concerned about things and they get over-concerned. And it's very important for people to be aware that there are good things about garden plants and not to be desperately worried about invasives, but they, you know, obviously there is the environmental impact
1: and we need to avoid any further damage. Thanks John. As John mentioned, as well as water lilies, there's other aquatic plants that you can grow without risk in your garden. There's Ranunculus aquitalis, or water crowfoot, that has white flowers in May. It'll even grow in running water, so if you've got a rill or a fountain, it'll probably survive in there. There's Water Soldier, which is Stratiotes alloides, and that floats just below the surface. This time of year it's sunk to the bottom of the pond, but it'll come up again later on. And my golden rule for aquatic plants, and indeed all garden plants, is never to release them outside the garden. Put them on the compost heap or if you live in a rural area on the bonfire, and they'll break down into compost or be destroyed in the fire, and will pose no risk to the environment. And now for our final story of the day, we're getting out of the weeds and heading to Wisley to meet up with Dr. Elizabeth Larson. Here we are on the research field at RHS Garden Wisley, standing next to the field research facility. And we're looking at a plantation of trees that are here in the bright sunshine, an occasional cloud on this wintry January day with a cold wind whipping across the site. I'm here with Dr. Liz Larson to talk about the trees that she's experimenting on here.
4: So I'm a research fellow with the RHS. It's a five-year research position with the environmental horticulture team and it's a collaboration with uh, Frank P. Matthews and my main focus is on trees and their environmental benefits to your garden.
1: We're looking at these trees here, I guess there's about 100 trees and they're all in pots, the pots are about half the size of a large dustbin and they're all connected Mm. with drip pipes and they're held up so they don't blow over and on the face of it, it looks like a very nice plantation of trees but there's more to it, isn't there?
4: Yeah. So, what we're interested in here is very much kind of the physical aspect of how trees use water and how then that can affect their environment or their microclimate. So, if you want the specific, there are 60 trees here and their pots are 130 litres. And there are 10 different garden cultivars. We have prunus, so cherry, and we have acrotagus, a hawthorn, we have cupressus, so a Mediterranean cypress. We do have a sorbus, a rowan. We do have a magnolia and a metasequoia, so redwood. Malus, an apple tree. And Ilex, a common holly cultivar. And then the picea, which is Colorado blue spruce. So that kind of covers the range of both having common garden cultivars, but also deciduous and evergreens and broad leaves and needle leaves species. We wanted the whole range of different leaf and growth characteristics.
1: So let's go and have a closer look and see how the trees are faring. So we're looking at these trees and they're in these big pots and there's lots of wires and pipes running everywhere and these wires and pipes have a specific purpose. The actual instruments they were attached to have gone indoors for the winter. They're very expensive and complicated and we don't want them frosted. But perhaps you can explain what instruments you used here and what you measured.
4: So the main piece of equipment that I've been using are sap flow sensors and what they do is that they actually track the rate of how fast sap moves up to stem. when you know how fast the inner sap is moving, and you know also the size and the properties of the wood and the sap, you can calculate then how much water essentially is coming out of the tree, how much transpiration, how much water the trees are using. By monitoring that continuously together with the weather indication, which is solar radiation, wind speed, rain, temperature and humidity, we can know which trees perform best under different conditions, and what we ultimately want to know is how they use their water. So how much they're taking up under these conditions, for instance. Obviously now the deciduous ones are without leaves, so we stop monitoring them in winter time because we know that's not going to be any transpiration, but the evergreens are still going and it's also interesting to see how that can compare when they're all in flourish in spring or summer.
1: When you've got the results, are you looking to see how efficiently the trees use water or how well they stand up to water stress? Is that the kind of thing that you're interested in?
4: So the main thing we're interested in is actually environmental benefits of trees in the face of climate change. So we're looking at how they can both reduce temperatures in the summers and then also how trees can actually help you reduce soil erosion, also surface flooding and reduce the impact on floods when there is a lot of rainy periods and also carbon sequestration and carbon storage. What we're also interested in showing gardeners is that smaller tree can have an effect as well because When it comes to environmental benefits of trees, we're used to hearing that the bigger the better. The bigger the more carbon they store, the more water they can trap, the more shading they can provide, the more habitat for wildlife. But we want to give a relative value as well. So that's why we also have small to medium cultivars so we can show that they can have an impact on how much rainwater is reaching the ground in your garden and they can have an effect on the thermal comfort for both people and animals under the canopy in summer. And that also translates to how much the ambient cooling can be as well.
1: One of the really interesting things is that you've got an industry partner. Often scientists, horticultural scientists anyway, are accused of working in isolation from the real world. So it's really nice you've got an industry partner, but what are they going to get out of it?
4: At the end we want to be able to provide a guide So what the industry partners, Warkby Matthews, would like to get out of it is that we have this range of different trees now and then we can rate them basically on their different aspects and how efficient they are for flood mitigation and thermal regulation and carbon storage. And then they, with their expertise, knowing which trees are much similar in structure or in how they use their water, can upscale it so we can be able to provide Gardeners with the rating, hopefully, of how efficient they are on these different aspects.
1: So what do you think the average gardener will take away from the research you're doing here?
4: Well, I hope the average gardener will see trees for more than just aesthetically beautiful. I mean, I think obviously that's a big reason to have a tree in the garden as well, but they actually do have a big effect on your water use in your garden. I don't think it's so... Much talked about how much actually water the trees are taking up from the ground, but also what they can do in terms of both cooling and flood mitigation, also, how important they are for wildlife. And although carbon sequestration is incredibly important, it's not the only environmental aspect of trees. So, if there was anything, it would be that the range of the benefits that they can provide.
1: Well, that's really interesting. I'm particularly interested in this because my garden is full of trees. I've got more trees than the rest of the street combined, I think. So how they affect the environment of my little part of North Surrey is is of great interest.
4: And I'm sure you could see it in the ground in terms of how much water is there or how much shade that you're provided in the summer or how many birds are coming in or how many insects are being provided pollen from your trees
1: yes it's true my garden is full of insects and it is lovely and shady last year we had record temperatures and drought and the trees made my garden much more pleasant than other people's gardens i get bats in the evening as well as all the birds i could do without the squirrels i suppose but that's a minor thing compared to the benefit of the trees thanks there to liz larson In these times of change, trees are so important to intercepting water when there's excessive rainfall and potential for floods and for keeping us cool in the hot summers we expect to become more prevalent. Dr. Larson is laying the groundwork for how we choose and grow trees over the next hundred years. Well, that's about it for today. If you've enjoyed the show, please consider giving us a review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify or wherever you listen. It's the best way to help us share the love of gardening. This week in the depths of winter, there isn't a great deal to do except go through your seed orders, ordering your seed potatoes and your onion sets. But on the days when there's a bit of sunshine and it's not too cold, go out with one's rake and rake up the debris and get the ground ready for planting, build up the compost heaps, and above all, carry on with the pruning of the trees and shrubs who've lost their leaves for the winter. That's all for now. So from me, Guy Barter, goodbye and thanks for listening.